morning our sermon comes from Daniel chapter 4, and you will see the uh, sermon text and outline on pages 7 through 9 in the bulletin. Let me begin by asking you what you find to be the most difficult thing. What is the hardest thing for you to do? And I know that in a room like this, we would have a number of answers to that question. Things like to forgive, to share, to apologize, to wait, and much more. These are truly difficult challenges in our lives, and they cluster around one explanation. Pride. The things I find to be most difficult are most difficult because of me, because of my intervention, my failure to be humble and serving as the Lord Jesus was. So this morning, as we turn to Daniel 4, we pick up the story of a man who was, who, had, who, had, who didn't have the same problems we have. He was supreme in his power and authority. Anything that he wanted, he could have. If it was something he could buy or something he could request, if it belonged to somebody else, as king, he could and often would take it. He was Nebuchadnezzar, and nobody argued with him. Whole nations bowed before him, and people struggled to even know what his next move would be that might mean the end of their lives or their prosperity. We find his story told in Daniel 4, and he is, as supreme king, nevertheless finding himself with some fresh challenges. So follow along, if you will, as we read Daniel 4, verses 24 through 37. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times this will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what you decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails were like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His domination is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have recorded the experience of Nebuchadnezzar and that he too participated in the testimony of what happened to him. May it be so for us as well, that we might not be kings of our lives or our little kingdom, but that we might serve you humbly as our Lord Jesus did, and that we might be your servants, not ours. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The New Testament tells us that one of the earliest testimonies that the Bible, that the people of God gave after the resurrection was a very simple one. Jesus is Lord. That was the testimony of the church in those early days as they spread from place to place the gospel and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And by that they meant surely that God's in charge, that he's the sovereign one, that he's the one who rules over heaven and earth. That's uh, part of the beauty of this statement. It's very succinct and yet very rich, and that's part of the meaning. But the other part of the meaning is Jesus is Lord and I am not. He is the one who rules over me, not me over him. Both of these truths are very difficult to get into our minds and into our hearts especially. That we would surrender control to someone who has all control is not natural to us. We want to hold it to ourselves. And that we would serve him and not ourselves is again not natural to ourselves. You will remember this morning, even as we, as we acknowledged our sin before the Lord, as we gave testimony of his mercy, we, we quoted... 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the Good News. And here it is. Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. It's all throughout the scriptures. It's not that we might wonder what, the God, what God would want of us or what the Bible says. The matter is one of application. How do I handle my pride. This is the sixth in the series on the 
seven deadly sins, the seventh being this coming Thursday night at our communion service on Maundy Thursday, where we will look at sloth. We have looked at envy, greed, lust, gluttony, and anger. And all of them can be subsumed under this one heading. If there is a greatest deadly sin, if there is one that is the most prominent, it is pride. And it is the one that explains all the others. Why are we slothful? Because we're thinking of ourselves. Why are we greedy? Because we must have it. Why are we lustful? Because we have an appetite that we want to satisfy. In other words, me, me, me. I remember when I was in Tennessee, shortly after I arrived, I was visiting with an older woman, and she said, Pastor, I have eye trouble. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. Are you, is, are you going to an ophthalmologist or something? She said, no, eye trouble, me. <laughs> I get in the way. I've never forgotten it. We all have eye trouble. It's natural. It's part of the fall. Adam and Eve grasped the fruit. Adam and Eve shifted the blame. Adam and Eve were thinking of themselves. Now, we can blame, to some extent, the serpent for these things, but he only made the suggestion. They embraced it. They took the step. And ever since, we have continued to do so. Therefore, the Bible is, maybe, is a book that could somehow, sometimes be described as an anti-pride manual. It strikes in a thousand different ways on many different pages at the one thing that most plagues us in our lives. Here's a verse from Romans 12, as you see on the outline. Live in harmony with one another... Do not be proud. There's a connection between harmony and pride. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited, self-absorbed, self-reflective only. Nebuchadnezzar had all kinds of encouragement to live this way. And we pick up the story in chapter 4, but he, he has been a very successful general, he has been a political masterpiece. He is unopposed in his region and in his country. When he wakes up in the morning, as far as he can see, there are people who bow before him, call him great, and make him king. Now, he probably didn't need any encouragement, but he had a lot of it every day and every day and every day. Oh, yes, king. Oh, mighty king. What do you want, king? And so... His natural bent, like each of us toward pride, was inflamed, and agitated, and enhanced. We pick up the story in chapter 4 where he is unopposed. But he's been disturbed. He's had some dreams, and he doesn't understand them. He needs an interpreter, and the interpretations have been slow in coming until Daniel begins to give him some information. And he says, essentially, your life is going to fall apart. Evidently not because of a foreign army or not because of some attempt at assassination from within or insurrection among his own people. But he's going to lose his mind. He's going to no longer be able to take care of himself and he's going to make a fool of himself. Now just imagine, 
None of us are kings. None of us occupy such a high place, but to have news like that, very disturbing. Very disruptive. What effect does it have? Zero. Zero. A whole year goes by, and he absorbs the news, but does nothing about it. But then, in a most chilling way, it comes a second time. Twelve months later, verse 29, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of his majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, he, as we say, barely got the words out of his mouth when a voice came from heaven, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. The past tense has been taken. It's over. You didn't even hear the gun go off. Everything has been taken from you. You will be driven away, just as we told you a year ago, from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth. And immediately, verse 33, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Now, who cares about Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, he's dead. That's centuries ago. What, what difference does that make? I'm not a king. I don't live in that place and time in Babylon. This is a warning. Boldly printed on the pages of Scripture. Do not be conceited. Just a brief definition. Pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift. You see, everyone told Nebuchadnezzar that he was great, And his accomplishments in battle and in political order and in governing were great. So he thought he did it. But he had really inherited it all. It had all been handed to him. Not in the normal course of uh, case of inheritance, but it had come down to him from heaven that he could be great. And he was claiming to be the author, the most high, the most exalted king. He claimed to be the altar, uh, the, uh, the owner of what was really a gift. If we don't hear anything else this morning, we must hear this. Pride claims that which is a gift. It's a lie. In other words, it's false. It's not true. It just is not true that what we have is what we did. Even the accomplishments of our lives, the so-called achievements of our career and family, have been themselves daily gifts from God. That's what the Bible says. And we say it when we say Jesus is Lord, but we refuse to say it in our hearts because we want the credit We want to be puffed up. We like the feeling of having people say, oh, a living legend. When really we're just a legend in our own mind. Right? On the other hand, the opposite of pride is humility. Humility is that which receives life, all of life, as a gift. Not as a reward or an achievement. And so the humble Lord Jesus teaches us as he comes into the holy city 
that humility is greater than pride. We can't miss it. No other king. Nebuchadnezzar would not come into Jerusalem like this. And when he defeated the Israelites, he came in, no doubt, on a chariot or a mighty horse or at the head of a grand army with all the trumpets blaring and all the power in manifestation. But not this Lord. Even at his greatest moment and his highest popularity, he is meek and lowly and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We can't miss this. It's all throughout the scriptures, but here at one of the apexes of the scriptures, there is humility. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, he says from the cross. Humility just pours out of him when he is the one who could call all the angels of heaven and all the heavenly hosts to his own command at any time he pleased. And so pride makes one very bad assumption. The world is worse than we deserve. We deserve better. And if, we're not, if we don't have it, we'll take it. And if we didn't really accomplish it, we'll claim it for ourselves anyway and bask in the glow of it. This is such a problem that even the ancient Greeks often referred to it. They used the word hubris. And so it is a worldwide problem and also for believers. Fortunately, thankfully, God doesn't leave us in our pride and our blindness. He continues to try to wake us up. And at least twice he came to Nebuchadnezzar, once one, with an intervening one 12-month period, to say, wake up. And the words on Nebuchadnezzar's lip as he woke up was, I'm dis- my sleep is disturbed, I don't understand this, but I'm great. It is an act of mercy when God wakes us up. When he disturbs our lives, we should be grateful for those he sends to waken us from our pride. Most of the time it's called spouses, (laughs) parents. And it seems like their role in life is to say, you're not so hot. Take another look at this. I'm married to you. I'm your child. I'm your parent. I know you. You're not as great as you think you are. Quit taking credit for something that God did for you. This is one of the most wonderful things that a spouse can do. It is most unwelcome, let me say. (laughs) But it's a wonderful thing. Because we can help each other here. We can help each other here. George Strait, the famous country singer, has been one of the most successful artists of all time and has no doubt accumulated quite a bit of financial reward. And it seems that one of the things he really enjoys is land. He's a rancher. He hosts an annual rodeo on his property, etc., outside of San Marcos, Texas. And over the years, he's bought quite a bit of land. And so one day when he was being interviewed, by somebody about his success and his life. I said, Mr. Strait, you have, obviously, have land. Uh, how, how much land do you have? Oh, he said, my daddy raised me better than that. He was taught by his parents 
by a single parent, by the way. His mother abandoned them when he was young. He was taught by a single parent that pride is dangerous and conceit is ugly. So when asked to praise himself publicly and to show what he had done and to add accolades to his already successful career in life, he said, oh no, my daddy raised me better than that. It was a striking statement that pride can have, your effect on the pride of your family can be profound. He wouldn't answer the question. He wasn't looking for that kind of reward because his father had taught him there is another way to live this world. Now the core of pride is to seize credit as, as Nebuchadnezzar does for his kingdom and his victories. And this is how I think, and I wrote it down, I think you probably much like this. When things are going well in my life, then I think I have worked harder than others and I am smarter than others. I figured it out. What's wrong with these people? When things are going well in your life, pride takes over. Conceit and self-congratulation suffuse our lives. And there are good days. There are days that go well. And there are blessings that God gives us that gladden our hearts. So when things are going well, I say, therefore, I deserve these things. I'm owed these things because I'm just a little smarter and I've worked just a little harder and I've done just a little more and I've been a little more faithful than the other people. Me. Not Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus gave me these things, but I did it. And when things are going badly in my life, I say, this isn't right. This isn't fair. I am suffering more than other people. I've done the right things and I'm a preacher for crying out loud. Things ought to go well. Everything ought to be smooth. I'm having a harder life in, 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 uh, than others. Therefore, I deserve a better life because I've worked harder. So life isn't fair. And again, the measure of my life is me. The measure of my person is me. In good times or bad, you see, we always default to conceit and pride. When it goes well, we congratulate ourselves. When, we, when it doesn't go well, we explain and blame others. So under application of this point, pride expresses itself in many forms and circumstances. It is not only the fault of the rich. If you admit that he is the author of all that we have, then you have lost control, which we must admit we don't want to do. But a joyous life results from seeing and acknowledging that all of it is a gift. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 7. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself, Paul says, and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. They were, they were praising and, and arguing among themselves about the greatness of these two men. Then, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other, not, and being rivals and, and being schismatic in the church. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? What? do you have that you did not receive? Who gave you the breath, 
the strength, the intelligence. Where did that come from? Did you, did you, did you earn that? You were given it. It was placed as a deposit to your account as an asset. Could it be wasted? Yes. Do people waste it? Yes. But even those who apply their gifts fully and to the greatest extent must admit at the end that those were just gifts that were given to them and the reason they're not a Tibetan monk in the fourth century living on a, an abandoned hillside is simply because God made them here and now to be in this generation and to enjoy this good and full life. So this is a deadly sin. And the seriousness of it is seen now as the king is made into a fool. The result of pride is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, not always so dramatically. Not always in such a memorable way as predicted by the Lord. But we make fools of ourselves in all kinds of different ways, and one of them is in being boastful bores. Let me tell you how I accomplished and achieved humility. <laughs> right? Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an animal. And that's what pride does to us. It makes us the sum of our appetites and achievements as if we were just some kind of resume. Because he aspired to become more than God made him to be, he became less. We must see this. He was unable to empathize with others, and so are we. He's driven by ego, survival instincts, and he's incapable of joy. He's miserable. And so are we. It may feel good for a moment to boast and be conceited, but gradually our friends drift away. And people say, get over yourself. It's unpleasant. It's ugly. This bragging. This self-aggrandizement. I don't like it. There's more to life than this. We can see that you're successful. Do you have to tell us again and again and make a fool of yourself? Well, pride ran no deeper in any of us than it did in Nebuchadnezzar, and he was healed of it. This is a remarkable and tremendous story. As deep as pride runs, it can be healed. Notice verse 34. At the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar breaks into the, into the um, narrative. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Did he do anything? No. God just relented. God just stopped it. And then I praised the Most High. And I honored and glorified him who lives forever. By contrast, not me, the former grass-eating ox. His dominion is an eternal dominion. My kingdom will end. And I know that my children and grandchildren will face enemies, and I wonder how they'll do. His, dominion is His kingdom endures from one generation to another. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. That's the facts. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is an astonishing confession and repentance 
and an affirmation of faith by one who was the most caught up in pride. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, don't praise myself. He's learned something. God has raised him to see something. He says, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, verse 37, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And all who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Thank God that he is. Be grateful. Be grateful for your children. Be grateful for your life, your home, your car. But be grateful that God can humble you and put you in your place, the true place that we were made to be as creatures, as servants. We must see two things, and Nebuchadnezzar seemed to. You and I don't deserve anything from God but judgment. He does not owe us Strictly speaking, anything, everything we receive from him is a gift, not earned or deserved by us, at least of all eternal life, which is his greatest gift. Do you see that you don't deserve anything from God but judgment? Do you feel that? Do you know that? Yeah, we can nod in church, but do you know it in your heart that, that you are a miserable sinner? just like me. But secondly, you are also the object of the great mercy of God. You don't have anything that he didn't give you, but look what he gave you. Everything that I have, I inherited as a gift from him, but look at how rich he's made me. I have been an object of his mercy. He has blessed me with a a spouse, a job, a health, a family, a, on and on and on. He has blessed me with the blessings of eternal life, of seeing the truth of these things. He has blessed me richly, richly, richly. So let the realization of your pride humble you and not harden you. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful and mighty and proud men of his generation, was broken like a stick by the hand of God. This should humble us. We should say, I've learned. We should say, I want to teach my wife and my children not to tell them how many acres we own, not to stand upon our achievements, but to serve like the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what he did? I mean, isn't that what he did? He who was the most powerful, the most mighty, the eternal king of all kings, became humble. Took on the voice, the the message, the clothing of a servant, and humbled himself unto death, even death of a cross. What before you have regarded as your right or your achievement, you should now receive as a gift. In other words, take inventory of what you have and just label it differently. Instead of saying hard work, smart, better than others, achievement, say gift, 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 gift. Everything I have is his. It came from him. I don't have anything that he hasn't given to me. 
Two acid tests, if you're getting this. What do you do with your money? A lot of claims on it. A lot of things you could do with your money. What are you doing with it? The answer will come if we simply acknowledge that everything that we have is his. He'll show us what to do. And instead of being caught up and wrought up in what to do with our money or what not to do with it, he will open a pathway that how we, of how we might invest it. And we'll, our eyes will be opened, literally open to the needs and the, and the responses that can be given. Whose money is it? Done many funerals. Nobody took anything with them. Whose money is it? Where did it come from? Whose time is it? Where did it come from? Can you, Jesus said, by worrying, can you add a single day to the length of your life? Can you go ahead and buy another five years? No. Every day from this day forward is literally and actually a gift. And you can't do anything in your own power to extend it. So until you see that you're not in charge of your life, you will never see that he is your author and that you are a fine work of art cherished by him. This is what Jesus came to teach. And when, the, and when the disciples and the apostles saw that he had ascended into heaven, they, they put a, a label on their faith. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they went around the Middle East and the Mediterranean basin sharing that simple truth, Jesus is Lord, which means at least two great things. He's in control. He's the true king. And I'm not. Very simple. Very profound and life-changing. This truth makes life come alive. You see, in George Strait's answer to the in inquiring reporter, he was saying, I own my land, it doesn't own me. I'm a steward of it, I enjoy it. But I'm not going to stand here and tell you how great I am by reciting the number of acres I own, because my daddy taught me better than that. And our Father is teaching us not to brag, but not to boast. Paul says, don't boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't boast in anything. When I survey the wondrous cross we sang, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. May the Lord make it so. May he raise us up not to be braggarts, but to be servants like our Savior. And it's in his name that we bow together now. Let us bow. Oh Lord, we live near the capital of the richest, the most powerful nation in the world. And we are people of no small achievement along the course of our lives. We have done well enough. Help us to see that that's only because of you. Help us to rejoice not in our achievements, which are finite and foolish, 
compared to the gracious gifts that you've given us. You have made us rich, but it is you that have done it and not we ourselves. So help us to get over ourselves. Help us to ask the others, how are you? Help us to stoop low like Jesus did and care for others. For indeed, while we are all very rich, we are also poor when we think only of ourselves. So deliver us from this. Raise us up, Lord, as George Strait's father raised him. Better than where we would be if it wasn't for you as our Heavenly Father. Teach us humility. And on this Palm Sunday, as we have in our mind's eye the picture of Jesus coming into that holy city, we see him teaching us even as he rides, saying, take the lower place. The last shall be first. If you would come and follow me, take up your cross and deny yourself and come after me. And if you are going to boast, make no boast other than in the cross of Jesus Christ that we might indeed have contempt poured on all our pride. Oh Lord, we are liable to much destruction because of our conceit. And we make fools of ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar did because we think we're so great. Thank you for humbling us. Now help us to walk in humility. Through Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Lift high.